I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. It's the podcast that sets its guests the challenge of whittling down a lifetime of reading to just five titles to unveil the books which have made an impact and perhaps shaped who they are today. Uh, For today's guest, it was a particular challenge. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this time, I'm with Frank Cottrell-Boyce, a complete national treasure. I think he's definitely (laughs) earned that title. Uh, Frank is an acclaimed, multi-award-winning novelist and writer for film, TV, radio and theatre. In film, he's perhaps best known for his screenplays for 24-hour party people, Welcome to Sarajevo, and for the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony, which he wrote. It was one of many collaborations with his friend, Danny Boyle. His best-selling books for younger readers, titles like Millions and Cosmic, have become classics. And his latest book, Noah's Gold, which explores how our unquestioning reliance on technology can weaken our mind and survival skills, is out now in paperback. Uh, Frank, Cottrell voice. Welcome to Books to Live By. I mentioned there that it had been a particular challenge for you. I say that because um, you did send a list with far more titles than we would have been able to get through on this podcast. So tell me how difficult it was and why it was difficult. Oh, it was really difficult because, well, because the books mean such different things at different times in your life. And I just thought, I'll back that back to you and you can make those killer decisions. <laughs> <laughs> that was so unfair. I can't even do it with my own choices. That alone struggle through with yours. It's interesting you say that books, you know, um, can make a, a different impression on you at different times in your life. I, I know that you've said about children's books that, that, that the really sort of seductive thing about them, if you will, is the, is the fact that they can make such a huge impact, that they really are, um, you know, read at a formative age. And, and you can change uh, someone's personality, perhaps even uh, through a story that they read. Do you think that that's something that changes as we get older? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you read, read books that, that kind of inspire you and, and change your mind about things. But I think the books that you read when you're a child become part of your happy place and I think the last few years I think we've really learned that um, happiness is really important it's a great resource and um, being able to access happiness in difficult times is is really crucial and a kind of formidable thing to be able to give to people so is is um, humour the most important element for you in a way? I mean, I'm, I'm reading Noah's Gold at the moment. I told you it's a bit like reading Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, as an adult to be caught reading a children's book. But I'm very much enjoying it. But 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 it's very much driven by humour. And I wondered how important an ingredient you think that is in books, because it's one of the things that as adults, you know, we perhaps respect less. Yeah, but I think that's good, though, isn't it? That means like it's... It's away from prestige. I think seriousness is is very overestimated. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, my, my view of life is that it is comic. You know, we have incredibly high aspirations, and we fail, and that is comic. And there's a tenderness in comedy and a forgiveness in comedy. Um, so it reaches something a bit more profound for me than seriousness does. I mean, that's a, and also, you don't win awards for comedy. You never win an Oscar for a comedy film. You're never going to win the Carnegie Medal or the Nobel Prize for being funny. And therefore, you don't have to deal with the uh, the sort of pattern of prestige that sort of stops people being engaged properly. I, I know that sounds a bit mad, doesn't it? But you're never going to write a comedy book that people feel that they ought to read. And I, that's a dreadful idea that someone feels they ought to read your book. Has that pattern of prestige been something that you've totally managed to eschew oh, uh, in your long career? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, who was it? Anyway, somebody said, it is not enough not to win the Legion of Honour. One must be careful not to deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> But but as a writer who's who's written in in so many different forms, there must be a sense of wanting to be appreciated uh, for what you do. Well, the lovely thing about being a children's writer is that you spend a lot of time in front of your your audience, 
And that that's sometimes a very hard one appreciation. Sometimes you're in front of an audience that's being told to be there and you have to win them over. And they're kind of like the wrestling, you know, the Jacob wrestling with the angel of that. But also you meet children to whom your books, well, increasingly <laughs> as they get older, are meeting young teachers who come up and say, I was brought up on your books, which is quite a scary thing. But um, th- those books have meant something to people. If you, can, if you read a book at the right age, it can mean something really very profound to you, I think. I, I know that you're, you're going through that uh, that experience of confronting uh, your readers at, at epic levels at the moment. You've been busily visiting schools with Noah's Gold, and I think you've seen over 2,000 children this month. Yeah. Uh, very brave, because they really are the harshest critics, aren't they? They don't they don't hold back. Oh no, not at all. But they're also there for the, the high, their praises. It's the Paul Hollywood handshake, isn't it? If you get the praise, you know that you've deserved it. So that's kind of really wonderful. And it's been very interesting going to schools just as this pandemic is is ending, or as things seem to be returning to normal, just to see how different things are. And 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 tell me how different things are. What what have you noticed? I mean, some nice. I mean, this is such a strange thing, but the thing that made me start thinking about it is that normally you go in on a school visit and there are sort of a set of prepared questions around. I mean, you know what they are, where do you get your ideas from and how many books have you written and all that. And I've been reading this section about sharks in Noah's Gold and all the questions have been about sharks. Like across the country, every kid got engaged with the material that was directly in front of them. There wasn't a kind of... um, there wasn't anything around that visit. It was very immediate to them. And that's made me start, start thinking about what else has changed. It's really, it sounds trivial, but it was, it's one of those things I think, that is actually a really big change. And I don't quite know what that change is, but I'm really interested in it. You don't think it's just because kids love sharks? Just they do love sharks, good... that is true. <laughs> Well, you've just given me such a good idea because I'm patron of the Shark Trust, and you know, and it's hard to get fans for sharks, particularly amongst, <laughs> particularly amongst the adult population. Well, but I think key, that maybe we're not. Two, can't get enough of them. Yeah, we're not reaching out enough to to a younger audience. Look, speaking of which, normally I have a pile of of the chosen books of my interviewees sitting in front of me, but sadly uh, this week, particularly because some of the books you've chosen are my favourites, I don't have them, and that's a particular challenge when it comes to your childhood favourite. You said that books can be the happy place, can represent the happy place that you had in in childhood, and you've chosen where the wild things are yeah. by Morris Sendak. Um, Tell me why this book and, and when you read it and, and why it struck such a chord with you. Well, I mean, nobody needs to have it explained that it is a towering masterpiece. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. When we were little, I lived with my gran. My mum and dad and my brother lived with my gran in a very, very tiny flat in Liverpool. And so my mum spent a lot of time taking us to the library, which was just across the road. And I remember very clearly getting where the wild things are out. And then I never saw it again for years. And I thought I'd dreamed it. And, you know, you said that that happy place, happy place. Part of my happy place was thinking, I've got this great idea for a book. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to be blown away. And I used to draw these monsters from memory. And then I think in year six, someone brought it into school and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but I'd spent happy years thinking I'd imagined the wild rumpus. Those monsters are unique in literature. You know, they're they're very different from any other monster in any other book. You can really, you know, most monsters are a variation on a dragon or whatever, but the beasts in Where the Wild Things Are are so much their own thing. I think it's because, I mean, great works of art are when you really give, the the, the creator really gives themselves to it. And those, I think Sendak was very ill as a child and spent a lot of time in bed. And these uncles would come round and eat themselves into a stupor and say things, and they, none of these uncles had kids, so they would say things like, we're going to eat him, he's so gorgeous, we're going to chew him up. So it's just very, it's strange and magical and wild and unchained as that book is. It's actually really autobiographical. And it's sometimes true, isn't it, that the truest autobiographies are the most wildly reimagined, like, you know, like Kafka's Metamorphosis or whatever. I think it's a really, really personal book, and that's, that's why it speaks to us so profoundly. It's also quite bonkers. I mean, it is bonkers. I'm just I'm wondering if if Morris Sendak walked into a children's publisher now with that book, whether it would actually get published because it it doesn't really fit into any sort of category of children's book. If you tried to explain it to a Martian, I, I don't know how you'd do that. No, exactly. 
And it, I mean, it wasn't easy at the time. It was very controversial when it came out because the child behaves badly and there's a strong thread in children's publishing of of sort of setting good examples and being exemplary. And, and it starts off with him being furiously angry and he's obviously, in a way, the book is the description of a tantrum, isn't it? But it's also got this beautifully reassuring last sentence, which is, and it was still hot. So that, you know, the, 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 the care is still there, the meal is still there, that no matter how far away you travel, it, the, the food will still come. Is that sense of um, moral messaging, you know, which is which really sort of um, dominates children's publishing these days, I'd say, much more so than it did, you know, when I was a child. Is that something that's quite frustrating as a children's author? I mean, do, do you think that it is a way? Uh, I mean, of course, as you've said, children are incredibly impressionable, but, but it feels very literal in an awful lot of children's books now. And I, I think that I, that would have bored me. Yeah, I it, it worries me. I, I mean, I think there is a big moral imperative in all children's writing that you need to provide hope. And I think the best children's literature goes to can go to very dark places or very unexpected places and bring back hope. If children's literature has got a mission, it's to bring back hope. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's quite a lot of stories that are structured, and and it happens in film as well. Uh, you know, in, in Disney or Pixar, which can, you know, amazing masterpieces, but they often have quite fairly therapeutic subtexts. You kind of think, can't we just have a wild rumpus? I'm a big defender of the wild rumpus. And just uh, finally on, on this particular book, how, how did you feel when you re-met it <laughs> after all those years. I mean, devastated, obviously, because there was your bestseller uh, that you <laughs> thought you'd dreamt up and, and clearly it, it wasn't yours. But but on another level, I mean, emotionally, did it, did it fly oh, back yeah. decades? Oh, yes, absolutely. Just physically holding it, it was amazing because we moved house by then and it was like it's being reconnected to that flat was in a world that's vanished. You know, it was by the docks and there were balconies with you know sailors who'd been all over the world and women who'd never left the parish and monkeys and parrots and it had all gone it had all gone so when I held that book I was sort of connected back to that world instantly that's that's sort of part of, part of how it works as a, um, a happy place isn't it that books collect associations the way great pop records do but they're much more personal you own them in a more, more direct way yeah, and I think the thing that, that that I was also struck by with with your story about about this book was the fact that you didn't see it again for all those years, and it really reminded me of um, how expensive books used to be. Yes, and, and they weren't plentiful. I mean, there was no three for two or two for five or whatever the the, the latest deal is. I, I remember getting um, a box set of the Narnia Chronicles one Christmas for 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 my Christmas present, and. I mean, I don't think I've ever been as excited before or since because for me that represented months of reading yes. uh, without having to kind of wait for the next book to 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 turn up. Yes, no, that's exactly right. Uh, the, and the uh, sort of general unavailability, actually, like how how very infrequently you saw your favourite pop stars on television because you couldn't stream them. But yes, yeah, particularly with books because of that that element of ownership. Or, or, or there was also. There's a great TV series called Tales from Europe, which had a terrifying film called uh, The Singing Ringing Tree. And anyone who remembers it was completely traumatised by it. And then it vanished. It just completely vanished. And it was completely unobtainable till you were grown up. And you, you had to kind of reassure yourself that you hadn't dreamed it. But then every now and then you'd meet someone and say, The Singing Ringing Tree. And people go, <gasps> So did you have very vivid dreams? Because you've mentioned dreams a couple of times. And, really? and do seem, Yeah. <laughs> I'm notorious for having the dullest dreams in the world. <laughs> I dream that I've done household tasks and then wake up and realise late in the day that I haven't performed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's wish fulfilment, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. I think I do my dreaming with a pen and paper. Let's talk about uh, your second book, which uh, you've said uh, reading it made you uh, want to see the world. It's one of my favourite all-time books ever, so I was so happy uh, that you picked it. It's Naples 44, oh. an intelligence officer in the Italian labyrinth by Norman Lewis, who's surely one of the greatest travel writers ever, went on to be. I'm sad that you already knew it, because whenever I mention it to someone, I feel like I'm, if they haven't read it, I'm, I'm really blessing them. 
by giving them this gift. It, I just think it's it's one of the greatest books. I mean, he's a great, great writer, but it's one of the greatest books ever written, isn't it? It's extraordinary. It's an account of Naples' The, the Nazis have withdrawn from Naples, but Naples is in a terrible state. There's typhoid, there's no water, the Allies have landed. So it's a, a sort of day-to-day account of what it's like on the ground of a city that's just been destroyed by war. So it's very, on the one hand, it's very relevant. You know, we're seeing this happen in Ukraine or in Yemen or anywhere in the world. And So there's that aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is that Naples is not at all like any of these other cities. Naples is really strange, (laughs) really strange. And that strange kind of threadbare grandeur that people try to hold on to. So even while they're literally starving, people will pay someone to come to a funeral, you know, funerals of bodies that have been dug out of rubble or found in sewers. But you'll pay someone to come to that funeral in a good suit and be quotes the uncle from Rome to lend a little bit of prestige and he's and, and so it's all about appearances and, and and these very kind of baroque strange grandeur of the place that that people are desperately trying to hold on to it's full of incredible stories and part of his job is is to make sure that his his fellow officers are not being conned into you know strange sexual relationships or marriages by predatory <laughs> women who are incredibly predatory in this book. Made more by, or ironic by the fact that he was married to an Italian woman at the time. Yeah, but like there's, there's the woman who comes to, to speak to him about the fact that she has a lover in, in, the, in the British Army and he's not performing well enough. And she says, and I've prayed to St. Rocco and he, he's not helping. It's like there's a specific saint of <laughs> afternoon sex. And it's just... And he's, he's like, what? He feels as though he's come to the Bronze Age or something, you know. And there's people, because they sort of want to maintain appearances, they're still riding around in these sort of Jane Austen coaches, you know, the barouches and flies, because there's no cars because there's no petrol. So they managed to retrieve these sort of heraldic coaches. And it's the craziest. It's just, it's, it's a reconstructed diary, like those Paddy Lee Fairmore books as well, where someone's remembering something from a long time ago. And on every, every diary entry, at the end of every diary entry, you just go, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about the about the woman coming and complaining about her lover. And, and he does get a gift of a job, doesn't he, in a way? I mean, yeah. horrific, but, but also brilliant because he's asked to sort of collate the stories of collaborators and, and investigate, you know, who the people who were collaborators. So he literally gets every Tom, Dick and Harry uh, <laughs> in Naples piling through his door, wanting yeah. to tell terrible stories about their neighbours and yeah. kind of wreak revenge for some oversight or slight, you know, that, 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 that that's occurred. And it's, it turns out that Naples, Neapolitans are very proud of the fact that they, the, the Spanish Inquisition never got any kind of grip on Naples. But it's because, it's not because they were too proper, it was because the Spanish Inquisition was just like overwhelmed by, by complaint. Everybody, everybody in Naples went, my neighbour's a heretic. <laughs> you should burn them. <laughs> did, you, did it make you want to visit Naples? Did you visit Naples? I've been to Have Naples. You? I went to Naples um, to try and make a film in a, a long time ago, like at the beginning of the 1990s, and it was, it was absolutely impossible. It was for the BBC, and there was just no way that you could ever do the accounting you know it's like if I wanted to close this road who would I ask I know who no I mean like the police or the council no 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 I'll sort that out yes no this is not we have to show receipts and I was there for about maybe 10 days and it feels like an era in my life it's like you know I was at school was at university had young kids I was in Naples. And it's like, it feels like it's the same. You know, you, you plunged into this Alice in Wonderland world and he catches it so well and with such affection. Because there's loads I of the so, stories are so moving in that book, you know. Well, you I was going to ask you because you, you, you mentioned the, the funny one about the wife. Uh, then there's the, the surreal one of the, the commander. You know, I mean, there's no food uh, in, in the city at all. And, and people are, you know, 
probably eating cats. All kinds of strange yeah. things are being served up. And then the commander, uh, who he has very little respect for, I think a deep loathing would probably be a better description, finds himself... It's kind of like that film. Do you remember that film? with? Was it Matthew Broderick? It was about eating the last of a species. Yes, yeah. Oh, I can't so remember then, what it's called. It had a, a cameo from Marlon Brando in it. Anyway, yeah. it reminded me of that yeah. uh, because the commander eats the, the, the manatee, manatee. The manatee from the aquarium, which they think is a mermaid. Well, you know, they've, they've publicised it as a mermaid. It's just... But then there's also that beautiful story of the woman who wants to marry a, an officer and he goes around to visit her to make sure it's all proper and she has this beautifully laid out house and she greets him you know, with nice food and everything. She knows that she's not a gold digger. But he's really he's really drawn to her. There's something very special about her. He thinks that they've made a bond. So he calls back a few days later just because he's passing. And when he goes in, the house is absolutely empty because all the furniture and all the crockery and all the food she borrowed from neighbours to put this show on. And it's just oh. this devastating moment, you know. It's just, and there's a story like that every page in that book. It's, he's got such a great eye. How much um, do travel books in general uh, provide your adventures for you? Because I noticed that another book that you were wrestling with and you've chosen in the past uh, was The Voyage of the Beagle, the Charles oh, Darwin. Yeah, that That's a great um, I mean, I, I have a theory that you can actually never go anywhere and just do all your travelling via great books and yeah. end up feeling like you understand the world uh, yeah. as though you were a great explorer. Because... Being in somebody else's head is more exciting than being in somebody else's place, do you think? Uh, and when you say that about the Beagle, the, that Beagle Voyage book, what's great about that is, well, A, you know, he's a witness to a kind of relatively unspoiled South America, but also that that's a great mind at play because he wasn't, he wasn't the science officer on the Beagle. He was, there to, he was there to stop the captain getting depressed. So it's just hunting, shooting and fishing. And that's, I love that about that book. That's you know, if your mind is at play, what will it find? You know, there's amazing descriptions of him sort of just messing about on that in that book. I love that book. Yeah. And you could see, I think, with Naples 44, um, that Norman Lewis was going to go on to be a, a great writer and, in fact, a great travel writer in a way because of the way he views humanity, you know, with endless... Uh, endless... T- tenderness. Kind of in- Tenderness and enthusiasm and, and yeah. you know, he's endlessly fascinated by everyone he meets and, and, and manages to document them yeah. beautifully as well. He's, he pays attention, you know, and attention is the beginning of love. You know, he, he ends up loving everybody. Um, do, yeah, really... do you have to pay attention as a writer? What do you pay attention to? <laughs> That's the job, isn't it? I think, the, you know, I do think attention, the more you notice. I think that's the great thing about why we should be sort of encouraging creativity across the board, whether it's sciences, maths, or with kids in school, that all creativity is about noticing things. And the more you notice, the happier you'll be. And I think you really learned that during the lockdown, didn't you? That if you were stuck where you lived, then you just had to start noticing the beauty of it and, and kind of really get under the skin of where you were instead of traveling to somewhere beautiful and getting an off-the-shelf beauty, you had to sort of notice where you were and what was good about it. But don't you look at the school curriculum now and just despair? I had this thing happen to me recently. I told you I'm going to pick up my daughter this evening who's just finished her A-levels, and um, she was doing The Handmaid's Tale. And I noticed I was trying desperately to make up for all my bad parenting by being a, a good parenting <laughs> parent in, in this situation. I noticed The Handmaid's Tale was on at the ENO. Right. And I happened to know someone there and could get tickets for it. And so I said to her, look, I'm, I've got tickets for to go and see the, the, the Handmaid's Tale at the ENO. And she went, look, Mum, I'll go with you because you've got the tickets and I'm very grateful. And uh, she said, but it's completely pointless. She said, because I'm not going to have to talk about whether it can be viewed in different ways or whether it can be adapted or how it can be adapted or how it translates. She said, I'm just going to be tested on whether or not I've memorised the right passages of it to, to fill in the bit on the on the form. And I, I just felt so sad. Yeah, it's really stultifying. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a child just gearing up to A-levels and it's exactly the same. You know, I mean, we could talk all night about how we've ended up in that situation, but it is depressing. And I think the biggest depressing thing is that what seems to have fallen away from all schools, you know, having just 
is th uh, those activities where children who weren't school shaped could still find a way to thrive, whether it was art or you know sport or music. All these things are, are really being crushed out of the curriculum, and there's only kind of one way to being you know successful or well regarded in school, and that that also means you don't get the chance to experience failure, which I think is like a really, really, really important thing is to experience failure um, because it's so empowering, you know, finding out that you don't, you don't die if you're not good at fielding in cricket, you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know. And those, it's everything sort of channeled towards, I mean, you know, this is a generalisation, isn't it? It's the wrong forum to talk about it, but you're completely right. It's the absolute right forum to talk about it because I mean I think that, that books are really just yeah, a key to really everything suffer. you know yeah. and that, and that's yeah. the whole yeah. point and of this. In fact, yeah. I was I was thinking there, wondering whether you yourself were school shaped. It looks like you were because you went on to go to Oxford, coming from an environment where perhaps that wasn't necessarily the most mm -hmm. um, the most uh, common situation. But how much how much of that was was your parents? Your dad was a was a teacher, wasn't he? I had this very lucky experience that my dad went into education quite late, and I wanted to be with him. He did. He went to night school a lot, and then he he got a sort of teaching certificate, and then he tried. Then he got a degree, but he did his degree with the Open University. And I really, really wanted to spend time with my dad, partly because he'd been away so much, you know, going to night school. And so he was this rarity. So I'd get up in the mornings. The, the, the Open University then was like half past five in the morning, men with strange facial furniture, uh, talking <laughs> straight into cam camera. So I got up and sat with him. And, and that was, you know, like, and it was about wanting to be with my dad, but, you know, basically spectated while he did the Open University Arts Foundation course. So I was about 13 and I'm like, yeah, Vasari said this. <laughs> <laughs> Very annoying. No wonder you went to Oxford. <laughs> so I got school shaped in my early teens. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you talk about your childhood, it sounds idyllic. And I know it can't have been because money was short, you know, and I, I, I was listening to you talk to Kirsty Young on Desert Island Discs about, you know, when you finally moved somewhere where there was a garden and it was, you know, the size of, you know, the, the studio you were sitting in with Kirsty, but actually you saw it as, as, as a jungle, a wilderness, yeah. a, a wonderful place. Um, again, how... How realistic is that 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 view of your childhood, and how much is it sort of rose tinted? Because you do seem to present a very positive face to the world about about most things. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's an effort to be positive, isn't it? But you do need to find the positive. I think it's. Um, I do feel that I was gifted that childhood. We had a really lovely time. It's funny. My parents both died last summer. They died within a day of each other which, you know, tells you all you need to know, really, you know, that we were part of a great love story. And my brother and my sister and I went back to where we went to the same place on holiday every single year till I was 18. I think the furthest south I'd ever been before I went to university was, you know, crew. <laughs> and we went to the same place in North Wales. We went to it. And it was, it was so near, you know, when we, we, my dad, we didn't have a car. It used to take us all day to get there and people spoke Welsh. So we, I did feel we were like, honestly, it felt like Bruce Chatwin going there. And it was like <laughs> in 50, Patagonia. <laughs> yeah. It was like 50 minutes away in a car. And we went, we, we were like, we used to come here for weeks. It's like, what did we 
do? We didn't have a car. It's just this tiny village. What, what on earth were we doing? And we were just being happy. We were just dead happy. I mean, my parents had been, you know, they, they were in Liverpool when it was blitzed. They knew they were lucky to be alive, you know, I think. And my mum really had a habit of gratitude. She really developed that sort of habit of gratitude. She thought everything was going right all the time. You've chosen a, a book or at least a, a poem, and I presume a book, um, uh, which I think relates to all of those emotions you've just been talking about uh, toward your parents, St. Kevin and the Bluebird by Seamus Heaney. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and, 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 and why Seamus Heaney particularly, why that poem particularly. Right. Okay, I'm going to tear up probably. But I, I've, the story of St. Kevin and the Blackbird is that St. Kevin was a hermit in Glendalock. He's the Glendalock saint, about which there are many bawdy songs about him being tempted by women and stuff. But there's a story that he was in his cell and he put his hand out of the cell and a blackbird came and laid its eggs in its hand. So he stayed still until the eggs were hatched and the birds were fledged and flew. And I've always thought it was a cute little story and, you know, one of those charming little stories. And Heaney wrote this poem about it. And it's about a poem about patience and endurance. And it's very casual. It's very, it's very, everything you love about Heaney is in that poem. There's not a single fancy metaphor, but the detail is perfect. You know, so he says the birds were hatched and then fledged, then flew. And it's like, the, that, that's all that happened, but they're perfectly chosen words you know uh, and the first line is and then there was St Kevin and the Blackbird as though it's in the middle of a story and um, my dad had, had dementia and he and my, my, both my mum and dad absolutely adored Seamus Heaney they adored his voice they adored all his poems they loved him and I, and that was like a poem that I kind of half knew and then my dad had dementia and he was bedridden for the last five years of his life and my mum really looked after him, we kept him at home. Two of us looked after him. And then when he died, um, well, she died two days later, which was, she'd never been ill, just, she'd done her job, she died. And I was looking for something to read at the funeral and Saint Ke- there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. And it's about carrying a beautiful burden, you know, carrying a, carrying a beautiful burden and wanting to carry it and becoming part of that burden. You know, the, the last lines of that poem are, you know, he forgets, him, forgets himself, forgets all, forgets uh, the river. Uh, it's forget, uh, only the name of the river, which, and he's forgotten the name of the river. So he's just become part of everything. And that thing that when you take on a really big burden, you become, you know, greater than yourself. You become part of the rhythm of things. It's kind of, a, and it just exploded in my head. And that goes back to what I was saying about building your happy place because that poem had been available to me but it was just a cute poem and then when I read it at the funeral I, I, it made sense of everything for everybody you know it's also a, a wonderful affirmation of their parenting the idea that you know they waited and and oh. and stayed and were committed to the hatching yeah, you know, that patience. Yeah, and that. of course, I hadn't picked that up. Yeah, of course, that's exactly right. Yeah, because it's about any beautiful. I mean, I was just thinking. I've just been thinking of it in terms of her, but it's about any beautiful burden, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's an amazing poem. So it just sort of slides in. You know, we were saying about children's books before and the lack of prestige. It's a very humble little poem, and it'll slip into your mind, and then it will burst into life when you need it. You know. Do you read poetry a lot? Yeah, I do. I, I love poetry. Yeah, I do read a lot of poetry. I try to keep up with uh, poetry. And, and I reach back as well, you know. So, yeah, I do. I, yeah, there's always a poetry book on the go. Um, just finally on your parents, I mean, that that that, that sounds like, a, well, it sounds like a novel, you know, for, for someone to, to die two days after the, yeah, so the man they... they they loved all their life, but it must have been devastating for you as well because you'd you'd lived through the the terrible times. My mother has dementia, so I yeah, know really um, a little bit about how how it feels and and how you sort of lose someone long before you really yeah. lose them. Um, that must have been very hard for your mum. 
uh, what losing him? No. I th- well, I think caring for him. Oh no, God, it was really difficult. And it was really, really hard. You know, I, I used to have him one full day a week, and then half a day. And by the end of the, that day, I would be absolutely drained. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know how she did it. And it's a great, it is a great testament to how much she she loved him. And when everyone else had sort of given up on him, she would still shout at him. Like, <laughs> and that aggression was kind of like trying to find something of him still in there. Yeah, you know? like, where are you? Come yeah. back. I've told you before, you've got, you've got dementia. How can you forget that you've got dementia? It's like, well, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I've read, uh, I mean, normally when we, when we talk about social media, it's normally with a slightly disparaging sense, which is certainly from my from, from me. Uh, but I read a really sweet story about how you, you lost your wallet in Liverpool somewhere and it had a lock of, of your mother's hair uh, in it. And, and so you finally resorted in desperation to Twitter in order to find it. T- tell me what happened. Well, it was just that thing. It was so sweet. I mean, I was devastated. Why was I, you know... Her hair became incredibly beautiful in the last sort of 48 hours of her life. It just became this, it was, it was grey, but it was, it reminded me very much of, I've had the great privilege once of speaking to an Apollo astronaut. And he said, all the way back from the moon, we talked about what colour was that. And we had to admit it was grey, but it was overwhelmingly beautiful. And her hair made me think of that. And I carried it around in my wallet. And it was the night of a Champions League match. I lost my uh, wallet somewhere on Bold Street. And I rang all the shops and went back and visited everywhere, no sign of it. And in the end, put it on Twitter. And that lovely thing of people wanting to help, I'm being so specific. It was on Bold Street. It was on Wednesday night. It was about and people retweeting it in Seattle, you know, or, or Afghanistan. Or <laughs> That's like, so That's helpful. Not helping. That's <laughs> not helping. But then, then, like, within a few minutes, a guy from an Indian restaurant tweeted back saying, it's in our safe, come and get it. And I, I remember walking back in and... I, and sort of go, making eye contact saying, I've come about and going, do we know why you're here? It's like this huge cheer. And for for about two weeks afterwards, I was really famous. <laughs> People kept coming up to me going, so pleased about your mother's hair. So pleased you found your wallet. Got upgraded on the train. <laughs> And yet, that's quite ironic in itself because a fame has been something that you seem to have studiously avoided. <laughs> fame is uh, for losing my wallet. <laughs> I mean, not not fame because obviously you know you're known, uh, but you seem to have clung on to your anonymity in terms of being able to to live your life in a way that shows remarkable foresight about <laughs> the the destructive elements of fame. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, I live in my hometown, so there's a level at which you know people. I, I know you, but they're not that impressed after a while, you know. So that you just you. So that's good. I, I like that. I like I like that. I can go to the cinema by myself, and I know that people will still chat to me. That's that's really nice. I think that's kind of nice level. But Ben, I think Ben Hecht, who was probably the greatest screenwriter of all time, the person who wrote Notorious, said, um, "If you're interested in fame, you'd be better off be, trying to become a famous rider of a tricycle than than a screenwriter." <laughs> You're better off trying to become famous for riding the tricycle. <laughs> no, who would want Love that? It. Yeah. Interestingly, um, the one book that I that I was quite surprised by, I have to say, on on your list, the character that you wanted to be, um, William Brown, just yes, William, by Richmond Compton. Yeah, I mean, but I always think of that. I think because I was brought up in in Ireland, and you know. Even reading English books was a, was an act of betrayal, you know, in some ways in, in, in Southern Ireland. But, you know, just William, he just summed up everything that was English in a way that, oh, yeah, that, I never that we that. chose to disparage in a way, you know. Oh, that's so that's so interesting. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? And isn't it? Yes. And, and you know, they've got a cook and they're obviously middle class and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know why that didn't annoy me. I think the reason it didn't annoy me is that I could see really clearly that William stood, well, A, Richmond Crompton, she was a great writer of sentences. You know, she's she's up there with P.T. Woodhouse, as far as I'm concerned, of like turning a brilliant phrase and particularly good at rants and dialogue. But that William stood for, William wanted the world to be a better place and it just all goes horribly wrong. Like, there are books about naughty boys and they're naughty. William is absolutely not naughty. He's full of gallantry and idealism. And people just don't get it. (laughs) 
And I, I love that about and also like his, that? his idea. <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time. But and also he stands for just wanting to be left alone, doesn't he? Like if he said to William, if if if, if William found a, a magic lamp and rubbed it and the genie came out and said, You've got three wishes, it would be like, I'd like to stay here and for people to leave me alone and I would like a bag of bullseyes and my dog and that's it. <laughs> he knows how to be happy, you know. Do you think part of the uh, appeal of it as well is that, um, you know, you mentioned the sentences and things. This isn't a book that was written for children. And so it, it's very ambitious in a way in terms of, the, it, you know, it, you have to step up to it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was written for people to read it to children. I mean, when you when you hear it read, it all makes sense. But the, mm. it's got this extraordinary vocabulary. It's, what, what I mean, it's got this lovely thing of like Williams always overstepping the mark, isn't he? And over, over ambitious, you know, he can't, if he tells a lie, he has to elaborate it. There's this brilliant one where he, he steals some babies to enter into a baby show, tries to pass them <laughs> off. <laughs> and they're like, well, and has the baby had any illnesses? He goes, oh, yes, yes, yes. And it's like, <laughs> like what? He, he can't think of one. He goes, lumbago. <laughs> <laughs> Which he's heard his grand talk about. Isn't it? Yeah, that's right. He's just—I I love that. I think because we've got a big family as well, we've had that experience of very young children talking like talking up because they want to be like their siblings. So they have that, and I always find that incredibly funny and attractive when someone very young tries to use big vocabulary. I'm glad you brought up your big family. Uh, I, I wondered if, um, you know, the ambition in having <laughs> seven children, if I can call it that, um, was prompted by the fact that that, that you had uh, such a happy childhood yourself or the fact that, that, that you are Catholic and well, yeah. and happily so and, and, and continually so. I, I mean, Denise is from a big family. I don't think there's any, ever any particular plan to have a big family. It was just that we were really enjoying ourselves. <laughs> We had a kid and it was just fantastic. So then we had another one and that was fantastic. And then it just seemed to be fun, you know, and kind of wanted to prolong that period in your life. And going back to Norman Lewis, actually, our eldest one became obsessed with Norman Lewis and therefore made us go on holiday to Sicily. Oh, if you've got a big family and you go to Sicily on holiday, you are a rock star. It was fantastic. <laughs> All those stories that, you know, you read Norman Lewis about jewels and danger and all that stuff and you go to Sicily and people would just like stare and we would get I remember walking down the main street in Soho in Noto in Sicily and getting a round of applause just for walking down the streets <laughs> what kind of parent are you would you say oh you'd have to ask my kids that. I mean and very enthusiastic parents I you know I, I throw myself into it I can't be the parent who sits in the uh, car park with the newspaper while the child is doing the activity so when they were doing when the, the boys were learning Irish music, you know, the, I had fiddle lessons too. And when one of our girls wanted to learn to ride, so I would have writing lessons with her. It was like, no, I'm unembarrassable. <laughs> but also they can't shake you off. That must be quite no, annoying. Can't shake me off. Well, they have, yeah, they've all, the older ones have all moved to London now, so they have sh shaken me off. But I, I, I enjoyed their childhood just every bit as much as I enjoyed mine, actually. Um, let's uh, move on to your last book. I can't believe we've we've romped our way through four of them so far. Um, Jerome K. Oh, Jerome, yes, three men uh, in a boat, which I mean, really, in a way, encompasses so many of the other books that you've talked uh, about. You know, it's got the humour and it's got the adventure and it's got the the brilliant conjuring of place that 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 Norman Lewis had and and it's a bit of a wild rumpus I suppose it is well. a wild rumpus it is it's 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 sort of weightless isn't it, it and it's I love the story of that book he was from a very poor background um, his dad was an ironmonger but he dabbled in business it's also all sort of went bad and I think he left school at thirteen and ended up with a job like literally picking coal off railway lines. Uh, but he was interested in amateur dramatics. And then he that was their honeymoon. They went on honeymoon. They took a boat trip down the Thames. So that book is a kind of memorial of the honeymoon, but transformed into this lad's outing. And it's, a, it's just wonderfully weightless and pointless and hilarious. And I put on Twitter recently, what's your, what, like I wanted to know what people thought was the funniest book. And it won overwhelmingly. You know, people, lots of people named lots of different things, but that was the book that was nominated most often. 
And when people nominate it, they can hear individual passages, can't they? The, the opening of the tin, the Paris, the plaster of Paris trout, the lock gate, you know, these amazing, amazing set pieces, one after the other. And, and what do you think it was that particularly struck a chord with you? Well, well, hey, it's funny, you know, and it's like how to do funny in a book is, it, it is like doing funny in a book is really hard. You know, P.G. Woodhouse worked really hard because you, you're not getting that feedback from an audience and you're not, you can't really throw anything back to the audience. So just seeing how someone did it, with that I found that really, really interesting. But I also connected with, I mean, my dad was a big kind of autodidact and had all those, you know, read a lot of H.G. Wells and Jack London and so on. And when you look at those books, there's a huge emphasis on people, people like my dad. My dad was like a clerk, you know, like, you know, filing clerk. That those guys who were young and, and they had ambition, but they were they had these grindingly dull jobs and they lived for, you know, the weekend bicycle trip, you know, the wheels of chance, uh, the, the the walk on the hill or, you know, the, 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 the kinder scout trespass or whatever. And I think this book is part of that world of like, Young lads work in the city, or you know, work you know, got boring jobs. They have this chance of fresh air and freedom, and they fantasize about being brilliant at it. You know, about being great with the boat and great with able to cook for themselves and all that. And they're just a bit rubbish at it. And that's a theme I think that really struck a chord with me. And, it, and weirdly, you know, even though these are striped blazers and boater hats, it, it did make me think of my dad and his mates and their you know, the Clarion Cycle Club and all that stuff. You say, it. you know, it's the striped blazers and, and the boater hats. And, and we also, you know, mentioned in Just William that it's definitely a, a very middle class, perhaps even upper middle class uh, family. Um, and, and interestingly, when Three Men in a Boat um, was published, it was criticised for being for Aries and Ariots. And, you know, it was real yeah. class disparagement. Yeah, yeah there was, um, yeah. About it, I'm interested to know why you think that those particular style of stories about Englishness or Britishness particularly appeal to you, because yours has been a an un, unusual journey of social elevation, if you will, that doesn't yeah. happen to a lot of kids, certainly not nowadays, you know, to, to go from, from humble beginnings in, in, in Liverpool and, and then to Oxford yeah, yeah. And, and then to pursue the career you have, you know, is there a sense of something that you still aspire to be? Or do you think that the fact that you are very happy in your own skin has been your saving grace all the way through? I am very happy in my own skin, but I, I've not, I'd not noticed that before about that until you've mentioned it. But it is true that I, I am very drawn to a kind of Englishness. And that feeling that it was, it's always somewhere else. So I loved like Ladybird books and I Spy books and when I was a kid. And I think when, when we moved to that house, I thought we had moved to the countryside. <laughs> so the, there is that kind of yearning for a particular England, which is always somewhere else. It's always somewhere else, you know. But does that mark you down as a sort of hopeless nostalgic no, I don't think so, because, like, well, I, you know, when we worked on the opening ceremony, the, the, the landscape that we both, you know, felt really strongly wanted to be there was that industrial landscape. No, I don't think it's necessarily nostalgic. It's it's just there, isn't it? It's like, it's that, I think it, it's more going back to what we were talking about before, about learning to love where you are, learning to notice where you are, and to appreciate what's immediately in front of you. How difficult was it? I was thinking about your opening Olympic ceremony uh, the other day, or opening Olympic drama, should I call it. Um, I was thinking about it because I was watching the Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee just passed, and, and thinking that there are, <laughs> there are good ways and bad ways of doing these things. And, and I thought that your... Um, 2012 opening ceremony, which I was dreading because I just the idea of a sort of celebration of Britishness just filled me with with I have to say some degree of of horror. And you pulled it off, and because funnily enough, I've just accused you of potentially being a, a hopeless uh, uh, nostalgic, but it wasn't nostalgic. It, it felt punchy. Um, how, how much did you have to wrestle w with your idea of 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 what we should be celebrating? Gosh, I mean, it's a long time ago now. I mean, there's a long story about why we arrived at the Industrial Revolution and Pandemonium, but we, which is to do with Humphrey Jennings and the, his book Pandemonium. You know, from from Danny's point of view, it was about energy 
and about a kind of visceral feeling and not being like a pageant, which, you know, those type of things often are. That is something that would be happening in front of you. It would be frightening and moving and have kind of visceral dynamism to it. And I think that's so that sort of Danny's priority. And once you start thinking about that, you do think about, you know, how innovative this country is in pop music, in fashion, and how eccentric it is and how a lot of its stuff has come from well, not revolution, but near, always sort of on the brink of revolution, you know. But that's true, isn't it? It's like it's very able to renew itself, I think. Um, so that kind of restlessness and that innovativeness is something that I do think is actually quite British. And if you think of, like, the kind of British um, totems that are in that, there's a lot of William Blake in that ceremony. There's a lot of Shakespeare. It's interesting because all of the qualities that you, that, that you quoted there are all contained in your book choices as well. So yeah. they're clearly <laughs> okay. themes for you in, in day-to-day life as well. Um, you've written across myriad uh, forms very successfully, um, but your novel writing seems to be contained in children's writing for the most part. Uh, I wondered why you haven't embraced a big adult uh, novel now, now that you're a grown-up. Well, I do think children's books are important. And I can tell you the story of how, why I chose to be a children's writer is that I was working on a film project without going into too much detail, but it was about Roma gypsy children who were taken into care in Switzerland as part of a kind of government program to kind of make them into better Swiss citizens. And obviously they were taken into care very young and they sort of kicked against it. And I met a woman called Marielle Mare who had really kicked against it. She'd been, you know, in 13 different institutions. She'd ended up spell in jail. She narrowly missed having a lobotomy. But when I met her, she was this sort of very grown up, she was an sort of advocate for refugee rights and she was a writer and she was, and she'd been taken into care and she was about 18 months old. She's, so she'd grown up in that care system. And I said to her, how did you know there was more? You know, that's a very all-embracing system. How did you know, you know, all this rebelliousness? How did you know that you deserve better? And she said, I read Heidi. Which is like amazing, isn't it? But, you know, I read Heidi. And I know why she read Heidi. She read Heidi because, you know, it's a Swiss national monument. And, but that's not what Heidi did to her. And the idea that you could do something like that, that you could write a sort of light-hearted, engaging book that would blow prison walls down, that's, I think that's really quite a vocation to have, you know. Frank Cottrell Boyce, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your books to live by. This was so nice. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a real... It was a real joy to talk to you, actually. I, I forgot that this was for a programme. It felt like a real conversation and a challenging one as well. So, yeah. yeah it was, was, it it was, was a real really, conversation. Yeah. We just happened to record it. Yeah. No, but it was genuinely. That was really lovely. I really, that was great. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app.